Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about living a graceful life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to download our app. Our app is available for Android and iOS, and it is a great way to get the content that we put out as a church. You can listen to our sermons like the one you're listening to now, but you can also watch all of our videos, sermons, and otherwise. It's an easy way to know about all of our events, and you can even watch our services live on our app. And so I hope that you'll consider downloading it if you're consuming our content anyway. You can get it by going to wilsonville.church app. That's wilsonville.church app. Or you can search Creekside Bible Church in the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you'll find it there too. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So first they made me come out here and do announcements and invite everybody to have lunch with me like it's some cool thing. And then Brandon said, you know, we were discussing on Tuesday how good things are at our church. And we were discussing, I don't know if you noticed this, Chad's incredible leadership that he brought to the church. I, we never discussed my incredible leadership. I want to be on record. I'm like, hey, what great leadership I've brought to this church, don't you think, Brandon? Uh, so the rest of that stuff was true, but that part he just lied. He's sick, uh, so forgive him. But I... Uh, I want to start just by saying thank you to everybody that came out to the church property yesterday. Uh, We did a lot of work and, you know, not a lot amount of time, and we reclaimed so much of the frontage of our property. It looks uh, just so much better, and and we can see that we're going to get the front all the way kind of... uh, uh, landscapes, you know, in our next property event, cut down a ton of blackberries, cleaned up the, the trailer, the storage that's on the property. And so for those of you that came out, thank you. For those of you that didn't, there'll be an opportunity for you to step up your game next month and to follow my incredible leadership. Um, I want to uh, uh, just uh, start with something that's going to sound terribly sad, but I promise it's not. And uh, that is that as we continue to talk about a life of grace, I think about my great-grandmother who has since died and gone to heaven, but in her life she faced many tragedies, and I've told you before some of these things, but her husband died when she was, you know, fairly young to have a spouse die. Uh, She had cancer um, not long before I was born, and, and at the end of her life, and, and this is what I want to talk about most specifically, I've told you this before, but she would have a heart attack like almost every night, and I was living with my uh, grandma at the time, and and we would go in, the family would go in every time she'd have one of these, uh, one of these heart attacks, and and we thought it would, was the end, right, like she's gonna die, we'd give her the medicine, and and then we would sit by the side of her bed, and I'd say her goodbye prayer, and uh, and it, I I only smile because it's like comical to think about, you know, dealing with a heart attack every night. We'd give her her medicine. And, and she would then be fine, and then we'd, you know, do it the next day. Uh, but what was so incredible in those moments, for me, looking back, was that the rest of us, you know, we would be sad, we would be, uh, you know, kind of feeling awful, stressed, scared, and my great-grandma would be sitting there like, like there was no problem in the world, like she was sitting on a beach in Hawaii, you know, like just totally relaxed, as relaxed as you can be when you're having a heart attack. She had a bell, which makes it more comical, so she had like a heart attack bell. She would just jiggle her bell. We'd come in there. We'd sit by her bedside, say goodbye, and she'd kind of hang out, see if the medicine was going to work or not, uh, and see if she was going to die or not. And it was one of the most as we talk, as we go through the series, I mean, there's never been a greater example to me of somebody who, who is living gracefully in, in the midst of, you know, pressure. I mean, very you know, real physical pressure, but also the pressure of facing the end. And, and I can tell you why my, my great-grandma was this way. It was this way her whole life. I mean, when she faced cancer, when her husband died, it was always the same. She desperately longed for, and I don't just say this like in some, you know, kind of like this is how she wanted to be or whatever, like really, 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 she desperately longed 
to see, to meet, to be with Jesus. She wanted to be in heaven more than I think she wanted anything else in the entire world. Like when she was diagnosed with cancer, she said, I'm not, I'm not going to get chemotherapy because if this is it, this is it. I'm 70 years old, which, you know, when I first heard that story, it seemed like so old. It seems less old than it used to be. It made sense when I was a younger kid, right? Like 70, she was dead, you know? I mean, what in the world? But now thinking about it, it's like, she just was like, if I die, I die because I, because, and she was not suicidal. She liked her life a ton, but she wanted to be with Jesus. She desperately longed to meet the one that, that she called Savior. And I think that a lot of us struggle to live gracefully like my great-grandma did because we don't share the same hope that, that she had. We may be Christians who believe that there's a good afterlife prepared for us. We may be Christians who kind of want to see Jesus, but probably for most of us, we're not Christians who really desperately long to be with their Savior, Jesus, who look forward to being in his presence for eternity. Uh, I saw in my great-grandma something that I, I think that our passage of Scripture is going to teach us today, and that is that hope and where we're going is what keeps grace flowing. I'm just going to rhyme today. Hope and where we're going is what keeps grace flowing in our lives, especially when we face intense pressure. If we don't have a genuine and true hope for what is to come when this life is over, for what will happen for us eternally, eternally then it is going to be very hard for us, very, very hard for us, to live gracefully when pressure mounts. And, and I think the reason... The reason for that is when we have hope in where we're going, it, it reminds us of, of our victory, our ultimate victory, that someday we will, we will be victorious. Ultimately, we win. Ultimately, things are going to be fine and good. And, and in the short term, it makes these things seem like little bumps in the road. There's this phrase, I don't know where it comes from or who made it famous or whatever, but uh, it's, a, it's a Christian phrase. It's so simple. It's, I'm sure, used outside of Christianity a lot, but this ain't it. It's something that my family would say when, we were, when I was growing up. It's something that was passed down to me somehow. I don't know how or why, but, but the idea is that when we're facing something terrible, we can always remember that this isn't it. This ain't it. There is something better for us in the future. We are looking forward to something greater than this after this life. There's this country song right now that I hate with my whole heart. And some of you are like, yeah, that's every country song. But there's just this, this one song. I didn't even know the name of it until I looked it up. It's called Blue Tacoma. Do you know the song? And, and basically the whole song is about how heaven is sitting next to this girl in a blue Tacoma, California. I don't know the next line. That's as far as I get. And I hate the song because because it's not heaven. They're going to break up. You know, like, I mean, th this, this ain't it, right? Like, no matter how good you feel in the moment, this girl eventually is going to, you know, make him angry, and they're going to break up, and the high is going to wear off, and the romantic, you know, emotional excitement is not going to be there. And, and the reality is, well, it's like, whatever, kind of a catchy song, stupid lyrics. It's like, it's like so many people... If you're apart from Christ, this is you. If, you. if you're not a Christian, this is you. So many people are trying to find their heavenly experiences now, but it leaves them struggling to live a life that is graceful because we all know that this ain't it. I mean, if this is heaven, then it's not that good. But for those of us that are Christians, the challenge is to live our lives every single moment, every difficulty that we face, every time pressure mounts, recognizing that, that there is something better, better coming. And that's what allows us to live gracefully. It's easy when we're sitting in the blue Tacoma, California, next to the girl, to, to think like, oh, I could be so graceful, I could do everything right, I could come up with all the great one-liners or whatever we do when we're dating people. But when things go badly... When pressure rises, when work sucks and people are being a jerk to you and that same girl that you were dating is now your spouse and it's hard to remember why you liked her. In those moments, it's really difficult to continue to live a life that is beautiful. It's hard. 
But when we have hope in where we're going, that's when I think, that's when I think the grace continues to flow from our lives. Listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul's writing this letter to this, this church, and it's this church that he and a couple buddies started, and, and then because of persecution, they had to flee the city of Thessalonica where the church is, and, and Paul really feels, maybe more than any, I didn't look into this, but maybe in his writings more than any of the other churches that he writes to in the New Testament, he feels like he really has unfinished business with these people like he hasn't taught them enough for them to continue to stand strong in their faith like they don't know enough that he hasn't been an example to them enough that he hasn't helped them grow enough in order for them to be self-sufficient in their faith and he's just had to, to leave and now he's like desperate to get back to them and he said like I want to I'm praying to get back to you because I want to supply what is lacking in your faith and here apparently is one big thing that they just were not getting right and it's really how to grieve uh, it seems that paul has left them in a place where they don't know what happens to people when they die what they believe is in this thing called the parousia which is a greek word describing that early christians and we should live this way too but early christians they believed that jesus would come soon we should all live that way but they, unlike us, didn't understand that that soon was in God's timetable and not human, a human's timetable. And so they believed that Jesus was going to return immediately while they were still living. So then Christians start to die over time. And they're going, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking, it seems, like, well, the, they died before Jesus returned. And so are they out of luck? I mean, is my, you know, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, like, they love Jesus, but, you know, they just couldn't hang on long enough, should have exercised more when they were young, or, you know, I mean, they just didn't make it, and so now, now what has happened to their souls? And so it seems that they're confused, and they're sad, and Paul says, I do not want you to grieve like, and this is so key, those who have no hope. Those who have no hope. There should be a major distinction between those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. And, and that distinction may be more than any other thing, more than maybe any other attribute. The distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian, somebody who loves Jesus, somebody who doesn't love Jesus, somebody who has accepted the, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin is true, and, and somebody who has rejected it is not true. The, maybe the, the clearest distinction should be in hope, whether we have it or whether we don't have it. Hope in the, in the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, is not hope in the way that we, I think, sometimes use it. Uh, for me, I can use the word hope like, like this, I hope I win the lottery, but I never play the lottery. And so I just, I, I just, I really, like, I have this hope that someday I'll, I don't know, find a lottery ticket on the ground and it will be worth $200 billion. And I'll be, like, so, ex it will be great, right? And I, I, there is this weird hope in me. But when the Bible talks about hope, uh, it, it never refers to hope in this way. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about confident expectancy. It's this idea that we are looking forward to something that will happen. It's a belief that something is going to take place and the hope is that the longing for that thing to happen, to take place, to get here, to be fulfilled. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking, the way that we sometimes think about hope. Hope is a confident expectancy that, that what we believe will happen is someday going to happen. It's the looking forward to that thing happening. This, this should be one of the defining characteristics of a Christian's life. That we just don't think, yeah, heaven's going to be cool or whatever, but we, we confidently expect our future with Jesus and, and we look forward to it because we believe that it will 
take place. And Paul says this thing, I don't want you to grieve. And I think Paul would say, I don't want you to grieve, nor do I want you to live like people who don't have hope. But we, we do. We, we do. I think it's one of the, the biggest reasons that a lot of Christians don't live a graceful life when pressure mounts because we live as people who don't have hope even though we do have hope. I mean, we fear disease like people who don't have hope, and we fear death like people who don't have hope, and sometimes we grieve the loss of the death of a Christian like we have no hope, and, and, and in the midst of our struggles and our pressures, we act like people who, who don't have hope, who aren't looking forward to an eternity in heaven with Jesus where there will be no more sorrow or pain or struggle or tears or mourning, any of the bad stuff that we so desperately hate, any of the things that cause pressure and so I think Paul would be like hey don't grieve like you have no hope but I think he would also say don't live like you have no hope because it's hard to live gracefully if you're not confidently expecting an eternity with Jesus in in the perfection of heaven and a newly created earth and then he says this thing man I love this in verse 14 for four notice this we believe that Jesus died and rose again. I, I mean, the truth is that, that we should be people of hope if we think that Jesus died and rose again. For him, it's like this. You, you live and grieve as a person with hope because it's a natural extension. It flows naturally out of the idea that Jesus died and he came back to life. You live as a person of hope because of the foundational belief that makes you a Christian that Jesus died on a cross and he came back to life. The idea, as one author put it, is that if God would not leave Jesus dead, then someday he is not going to leave you dead either, the followers of Jesus, his adopted children, through the sacrifice that Jesus made. I mean, just, I mean, really, like, that's, that's, the thing if you do believe that Jesus died and rose again then you should be a person who lives a life of hope if you believe that Jesus died and rose again then you should be a person that lives a life of hope I said in the first sermon in this series that a graceful life is a gospel life the more that our lives are wrapped up in the more that we live in light of the gospel story, that Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth, lived sinlessly, died at the end of that life for our sins, and then came back to life three days later, the more our lives are entrenched in that belief, the more gracefully we will live, especially when pressure mounts. And now Paul brings us back to it, and he says one of the reasons for that is that believing Jesus died and rose again produces in us hope hope and then in the next few verses he says look we believe this it's a natural extension we have hope because Jesus died and rose again and then he says so we believe so because of that it doesn't come out very well in English because we believe Jesus died and rose again we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that we, even if we die, we will be resurrected. And ultimately, in the, the last line is the most important line, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, I'll just tell you the truth about this little section of Scripture right here. Whenever I've studied it before, whenever I've looked at it before, kind of the whole basis for examining it has always been wrapped up in how it all works. Like, does Jesus come for those who are alive and then people come back? Are these two events? Are these one event? Is it a rapture or is it just the second coming of Jesus for all of eternity? Whenever I've studied, read about these verses, it's always centered around how does this all work? But to argue about how it all works is to completely and utterly miss the point that Paul is trying to make. And that is that it will work. 
We are not supposed to get caught up in how it's all going to come together. We are supposed to get caught up in the fact that whether you die before Jesus returns or are living when he returns, if you have placed your faith in Jesus to be the savior of your sins, then you will be with God forever. You're with him now and you will be with him forever. I think this is similar to what Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is going to separate you from the presence of God because nothing is going to separate you from the love of God if you have given yourself to Jesus, if you've become a Christian. This is why we have hope. It doesn't matter what we face because nothing is ever going to pull us away from God's grace, from God's love, from God's presence, not even death. And so you can go through the pressures of every, everything that you face in life and, and you can still have hope and you can still have confident expectancy because you know that you will never, you'll never be broken away from Jesus and you ultimately have victory to look forward to in the perfection of heaven, as I've already said. The way that this hope is seen so clearly, and it's at the heart of what Paul is talking about here, is, is through uh, death and especially the, uh, the difference, if you've ever experienced these two things, between uh, the funeral of a, of a Christian, somebody that everybody knew was a Christian, and, and the funeral of a non-Christian, people that didn't have any hope in an afterlife. Um, I'm not, just because of the public nature, uh, going to talk about the non-Christian funerals that I've been to and, and tell you specifics this morning. Uh, but I would just say about them, uh, it's only been a couple. I grew up in a Christian home and uh, and so most of the funerals I've been to are, are for Christians, but I've been to a couple, and I'll tell you, they are, they're the most hopeless thing that you can imagine. They're sad, they, uh, there's no laughter, there's no joy, there's no hope, there's uh, nothing good about them. I want to contrast that, and I could contrast that with a lot of different funerals, actually, but I want to contrast that with a uh, with, with the funeral of a man named Mr. Ricker. I don't know his first name, but uh, my first paid ministry gig was a retirement home Bible study. And I would do it in the, uh, the kind of retirement section and then the assisted living section. In the assisted living section, there was only a few people that could come to this retirement home Bible study that I led. And, and one of them, their names uh, was Mr. Ricker. I don't know his first name, as I said. But I knew that we that he, before he had come to this assisted living facility and could no longer go out, had, had gone to the church that I was attending through college. And, uh, and so that made it cool. I'd seen my pastor there visiting him and whatnot. But as I led this Bible study, I started to make this connection. Our, the wings of this church building were called like the Upper Ricker and the Lower Ricker and the West Ricker and the East Ricker. And so I, as I'm leading this Bible study with this guy who was a great man, start to think, like, this guy must be so extremely wealthy. Like, he must have donated so much money to our church in order for them to name everything after him. I mean, literally, like, before I knew it was a guy, I just knew, like, I don't, is Ricker a word? Like, does that mean wing? Like, is that something? I honestly didn't know. So, uh, Mr. Ricker, I led the Bible study. He died. And I went to his funeral, and I went to his funeral, and, and the first church of the Nazarene in Salem was almost totally full, very large church, huge sanctuary, and, and for an old man dying, like, you just don't see that many people at a funeral, it was, like, packed out, and, and they explained something that I never knew. They explained to me that the reason that these wings were named after him is because he had been such a faithful Bible study teacher for so long. It had nothing to do with the money he had or didn't have. I had no idea how much money he had. But it was because he was such a faithful Bible study teacher at this church. And that funeral, the hope that he had, the way that he invested in me even in the dying days of his life, I have, there's one lesson that I continue to carry into all of my preaching because of him. The hope that he had was so clear in the way that his funeral 
went and the way that really his life was celebrated and the way that people genuinely were excited that he had finally crossed over from life to death and he was spending eternity exactly where he wanted to spend eternity. I've been to many funerals that have that same feel and flavor. People are sad. They're not pretending they're not sad, but they're also joyful because of the hope that they have and not only that, but because of the hope that the person who has passed away had. I'm telling you, the difference in in your funeral someday, whether it's a joyous occasion or a horrible occasion, will, will be mainly up to the fact of whether you, during your life, really had a confident expectancy that someday you would be with Jesus. And Mr. Ricker did, and it changed everything. Now, here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. I can look at his life, and say, yeah, it changed his funeral. It was so clear, right? Like it was so clear at his funeral, the way that we mourned his death was different than how we would have mourned somebody else's death. But I can also see it in the way he lived his life. Hope changes how we grieve, but hope changes how we live. Because if we really believe and we really long to, that we will be and we long to be with Jesus, then, then man, it's going to alter how we live our lives, especially when pressure mounts. And then, man, Paul says this thing to this church. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We have to encourage each other with the hope of heaven that that someday we will continue to be with Jesus even when we pass away, that no matter what we face, this ain't it. It's gonna be better. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be perfect someday. And we've lost a little bit of that in the church. We don't encourage each other with the hope of heaven. I know this is going to be like a big transitional statement right here, but have you seen Parks and Rec before the show, the TV show? Raise your hand. Go ahead. You don't have to be embarrassed. Um, Parks and Rec uh, is this TV show that kind of tried to copy the, the television show The Office in its early days. And, and so I started to watch this on the recommendation of my brother-in-law, Dylan. He's like, hey, watch Parks and Rec. It has some similarities. And, and man, I absolutely hated the first two seasons. I watched the first two seasons of this show for like over a two-year period. I mean, I would give it up, and then Dylan would say, I promise you're going to like it. I promise you're going to like it. And then I'd watch another episode. I think, this is terrible. Like, you should have never tried to, I mean, Leslie is nothing like Michael Scott, and like, this is horrible. And, and I just kept going because Dylan kept saying, you're going to like it, you're going to like it. And I've, I got to season three, and I, I watched seasons three through seven in like a week and a half. Like it, I was laughing the whole time. I was totally hooked. And, and I think that in our Christian life, the hope of heaven develops, I know that's weird, right? But the hope of heaven develops similarly to that. When we first become Christians, when we're first kind of dipping our, our toes into this Christian thing, it's like, yeah, I get to go to heaven someday, but that seems so far away that it doesn't have any effect on our lives. But if other Christians will come along beside us and they'll encourage us and, and they will keep talking to us about how great it's going to be and how God has a plan for us and how God's taking care of us and how no matter what we face, we can continue to have hope over time. We jump into the idea and we become more and more excited about this thing called hope. Dylan was like my evangelist in those moments. Not something I would say very often, but something that is true. I think we need others to continue to speak into our lives the hope of heaven, the hope of God loving us and being with us forever. I can tell you that I think one of the reasons that I'm able to live for Jesus is because my family has, has done a great job of, uh, of really being excited about the future. We, we've been good about that as a family. The way we talk about death, I mean, we don't, we don't shy away from it, but we, we know that it's going to be good for those that love Jesus. And so honestly, in my life, like I'm able to in a, in a different way, and uh, my family didn't, you know, create great habits in me in every way, but in a different way because I look forward to heaven. I'm able to live my life now in light of that eternity and not what's happening today. Does that make sense? Like I'm able to make decisions now because someday I believe I'm gonna sit with Jesus 
instead of making decisions now because whoever's mad at me or, or you know, like this thing needs to work or whatever. I just am like, what does Jesus want? Because that's where I'm going to end up someday with him. So these great phrases, man, I think we should like bring them back. Like this is a biblical one, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We should talk about that more often. We should be excited about that. We should not like be people that are just focused like the rest of the world on pushing off death as far as possible and not talking about it and, you know, not acting like it exists. Man, one of the, I just, I don't know, like I'm very honest with my children and I don't shy away from some topics that I know most parents do, but Hazel and I have had whole drives before where we talk about death. I mean, and, and I'm thankful for it. I'm glad about it. It's like we try to pretend, even in Christian circles, that it's not going to happen someday. Like kids aren't already wondering about it. My three-year-old is wondering about what happens when people no longer breathe on this earth. And, and I've done my absolute best to say, when you stop breathing here, you're going to start breathing in heaven. It's going to be so much better. We need to encourage each other in this. We, we, should, we should talk about how this ain't it. Another one from my family, and I don't know where this comes from. It's not original to my family, but only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I mean, this life's going to end, but what we do for Jesus is going to matter because nothing will separate us from his love or from his presence. And maybe this is what happens, though. This is why I think we've shied away from it in, in our you know, new millennium Christianity because for a long time when the topic of Jesus' return came up, all that people wanted to do with it is talk about when it would happen. I have this book, really eye-opening book for me. It's called End Times Visions. And, and this book is all about how people are obsessed with figuring out when the end of the world will come or for Christians, when Jesus is going to return. And there's this, this whole chapter called Prophet or prophet, like spelled P-R-O-F-I-T or P-R-O-P-H-E-T. And people have made millions and millions and millions of dollars saying, hey, I'm not going to tell you exactly when Jesus is going to come back, but I'm going to tell you it's probably next week at some point. I mean, people get rich on this concept. And, and frankly, I, I grew up watching things on TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Channel 20, where people are just telling you like, hey, this is probably when it's going to happen. I mean, Israel became a nation, and, and there's been this many generations, and now this is, I mean, I'm not going to give you a date, but it's probably going to be next Wednesday at 2 p.m., you know, like, don't hold me accountable if it's not. And, and listen to what Paul says, because this topic continues into the next chapter, and it's so different than what our world does with the return of Christ in verses one through three. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. Well, that's different than so many people that exist in our world today because they say, here's what I need to do. I need to write a book. I have to write a book and tell people that the end is coming. And Paul's like, I don't even need to write about it because you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The day of the Lord is a common phrase in the Bible for for really God's coming to judge the world. And Paul, in this passage, he reminds us of something that is sad and scary, that the return of Jesus will be great for people who are Christians, but it will be awful for those who aren't. It will be like a thief. Nobody likes to see a thief coming. Or like labor pains of a woman. Sounds bad. I don't know what it feels like. But nobody likes seeing these things coming. And a person that has not given their lives to Jesus or their life to Jesus will not be excited when Jesus returns. They will face the worst kind of terror, knowing that they will be judged for eternity. And Paul says, look, I don't need to write you about when it's going to happen because we know we can't figure out when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night and a thief does not tell you when they're going to show up. It just happens. Let me just say it straight up. I know I'm sorry to probably like a lot of authors you probably watch guys on tv and listen to their podcast but let me just tell you predicting the end times or the second coming of jesus is stupid and frankly i think it's quite against what god has declared in his word it sells a lot of books but it is a stupid and wrong thing to do because we're not going to be able to guess it. it's going to come like a thief in the night i felt like i needed to tell you that because there's a lot of guys on tv who are lying to you It's going to be negative for some, but then Paul says this other thing. 
But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that the day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. He's saying, look, it's not about when it's going to happen. It's about that it's going to happen. And if you are a person who has given your life to Jesus and living your life for Jesus, then you're not going to be surprised by it because you'll be prepared. You're living in the light or, in other words, you're living in the Lord. We have... uh, blackout curtains in my kid's room and not in our bedroom and the sun actually rises in our in our uh, on the side of our bedroom at our uh, our home and and so like if you fall asleep in our kid's room and then and then like let's say somebody knocks on your door at 10 in the morning you're gonna come out of there like I can't see and what time is it midnight still like I I don't have a clue what's going on and why are these people knocking on my door at two in the morning you know and then and the brightness is gonna just be very difficult to deal with you wake up in my room at 10 o'clock at least this time of year and and the sun's been up for like hours on end and it, it doesn't feel like shocking at all to your system and that's exactly what Paul is saying if you're a Christian if you've given your life to Jesus then even though Jesus will surprise you it won't be an unpleasant surprise you'll be totally ready for it give your life to Jesus live your life for Jesus because he's coming and then listen this is so good this is these last few verses so then let us not be like others who are asleep but let us be awake and sober for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk get drunk at day but since we belong to the day let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet since you don't know when jesus is coming what what people want to do is say well i'll put it off i won't think about it it's no big deal but what paul is saying is since you don't know when jesus is coming you better prepare yourself for the coming of jesus be awake be sober live as a person of the day not as a person of the night but i want to skip to that last phrase he says put on the hope of salvation as a helmet there's this interesting thing here that I wasn't able to confirm or deny, so take it for what it's worth, but I think I might be right. He, he does this thing with this, this kind of armor of God imagery that he uses in Ephesians more fully, a different book that he wrote. But he says that faith and love are our breastplate. In other words, faith and love, I think, protect our hearts. They protect our hearts, our will, our emotions, kind of the, the person that we are, the direction of our lives, our futures. But hope, hope acts as a helmet. Probably been wondering why I have this Thomas the Train helmet up here. I carried you along far enough. This is my son's helmet. Uh, Hudson has taken a liking to this helmet, so much so that he is uh, now taken to wearing it out on the town. Uh, He literally wore it to eat out not too long ago, and the thing is, he looks like a total nerd, um, and, and I, 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 I feel bad as a dad, like, like my goodness, like, I, I, I'm sorry, Hudson, the people at the other table are laughing at you, you know, but here's the thing, I've told you this before, my son hits his head more than any human alive. I always joke with him and with you that we'll never know how smart he could have been because he, he hits his head all day long, every day. And I'm not joking you, twice now, he's been wearing his helmet around thinking he looks really cool. Like, what's up, guys, in his little helmet? And I'm like, I'm like, man, he looks like a nerd. And then he's fallen, and he's hit his head, and he looks like, I should be injured. And he's not because he has a helmet on. So I'm just going to let him live his whole, I'll let him go to high school with the helmet on at this point. Like, if that's what it takes to keep his brain safe, And here's what I think Paul is saying when he says, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. I I think he is saying that it is the hope of heaven, the the confident expectancy that someday we will live in eternity with Jesus, that we will never be separated from his love or his presence, that protects our minds from the thoughts that cause us to live in a way that is against the will of God, uh, to live in a way that is not graceful. Just think about like how your mind can play such incredible tricks on you, especially in the midst of pressure. Like, like when pressure rises, don't you hear somewhere in the back of your mind, you're just not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You can never succeed. You'll never figure this out. You're not good enough. But the hope of, of salvation says like, it doesn't matter if I'm good enough because God loved me enough. 
Or like, I mean, I know you've all felt this at some point in life. Like, you're not worth anything. You don't matter. I mean, Blue Tacoma guy, that girl's going to break up with him, and he's going to be heartbroken, and, and he's going to be thinking, I just, I have no value. I was totally that guy. Like, nobody's ever going to love me, and I, I'm a just a worthless human being. I can't believe she did this to me. And, and the hope of salvation is like, no, no, you had so much worth that Jesus sacrificed so he could be with you for eternity. You're unlovable, it's very similar, right? Like nobody could love you and the hope of salvation, it protects your mind and it says, no, like God loved me so much that he, that he died the most brutal, horrific death so that I could be with him for eternity. I'm not unlovable, I'm totally loved. You've done too many bad things. You could never be right with God. You could never, you could never have God be with you, want to be with you and, and the hope of salvation says, well, he does, he does. You will be with the Lord forever and you will be loved by him forever. That's, what, that's how hope protects your minds from everything that Satan wants to whisper in your ear and from, from all of the things that can get twisted in your brain and cause you to live a less than graceful life. And he, he explains why. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live with him forever. I mean, it's the same story I've already told. Jesus died for you and he did it so that you might be with him forever and your mind should be protected by that hope. And then he says again, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. There's something really interesting in this passage that, that I really hate as a preacher because I'd like to finish by telling you like, all right, Here's how you grow in hope. This is what you do. And I think there's some things that you can do personally that you can be intentional about. You should, you should study the topic of heaven. I think that's really important. I've talked to uh, two parents now, just one the other night, that, that have uh, had their, their children die. And both of them, after their children died, uh, intensely studied heaven and, and what the Bible said about heaven because they were so desperate to know what their children were experiencing. And I think we would be wise to do that before our children have passed away, to, to, to know what, what heaven is going to be like and where we're going to live for eternity, which, hint, hint, is actually on a newly created earth and not in some place that we've never experienced before. But, but, but in this passage, there's two things that seem to be a part of us developing in our hope. And the first is God. We need to ask God to grow our hope, to make us more excited about a future and eternity with him. That's the first thing. If you aren't praying for more hope, then you aren't praying as fully as you should be. You're not praying for something that you ought to be praying for. You need to say, God, look, I believe. I believe that I'll be with you in eternity, but help me to long for it. Help me to wish for it. Help me to be excited about it. Help me to confidently expect it. But the other thing, it's so clear. It, it's it's other people encouraging us, building us up, reminding us of how great our future in heaven will be. I think what has happened, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but this is what I feel culturally. If you can just kind of gauge cultural Christianity, guys like me, we grew up with shows that were on TBN predicting the end times, and we're like, this is so dumb. Like, we've heard it. It didn't happen, you know. I mean, we got all these years that we've heard that Jesus is coming back, you know. I mean, uh, and it doesn't happen. And, and so what I think my generation has done to the church is say, like, we're just going to not talk about it anymore. Like, like, this is stupid. All these guesses are dumb, and so we're not going to talk about it. And I think that's a fault of my generation. What we should do is say, yeah, we don't know when it's going to happen, but, man, let's talk about how exciting it's going to be when it does I think I hope coming out of the sermon that we would just be a church that, I don't know, like just has conversations around coffee or whatever, and we, we literally say like, let's talk about heaven for a little bit. Let's just talk about what it's going to be like and what we're most excited for and how it's going to be great to be with Jesus. You need to pray for more hope, and you need to have others encouraging you in your hope. I want to finish with a, uh, with a very different um, grandparent relationship my biological grandfather I, I did not grow up with him as a grandpa really um uh, his 
name was Jim. My dad is named after him, if you know him. And um, at my great-grandma's funeral, the one I mentioned earlier, uh, this man, Jim, who I had gotten to know, we had, we had bonded by this point in my life, but he was not a, a, a part of, of my dad or my uncle's life when they were growing up. But we had, we had bonded a little bit. But he, he sat through my great-grandma's funeral. I had preached the service and I, I, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. We were telling the bike story. Um, go watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, but but I, I told you in that sermon that, like, I never heard the man say anything serious before. Like I, I said, if you ask him what time it was, he would say, a freckle past a hair. I, I literally am not sure I ever heard him give anybody the time ever. Like, you just were in this, uh, you could never know the time when you were with him. And, and And so after this funeral, you can imagine my shock when I've never heard this man say anything of any depth or you know realness he comes up to me sobbing and and is like and and I'm by the way emotionally drained this is I mean my great grandma was like a mother to me I've just preached her funeral service I'm upset about her death let alone like dealing with the emotion of this and and he is sobbing and talking about how all of his friends uh, people that he's you know known are dying and I don't even know what I said. I'm just coming off this like, just like, ah, uh, hey, yeah, we should talk about that at some time in the future. Uh, you know, like, I'm sorry, you know, kind of mention heaven. Uh, we have like, just like you need Jesus kind of thing. I don't know if he's a Christian. Like he would probably call himself a Christian. So anyway, I leave this conversation when I, when I kind of come down from all this emotion. And, and it's really on my heart. Like I need to talk to him about Jesus like that absolutely has to happen not long later he uh, suffers a series of strokes and they uh, went like a week before they kind of were diagnosed he was in his house alone nobody really knew and um, and it wasn't long after that that he would be dead we did a funeral a year for several years and uh, I'm so thankful that in between those strokes and his death God gave me opportunity where his mind was right, where we sat, we sat around a fireplace at the place that he went to live, and we talked about Jesus, and I, I was able to leave the conversation sure that he was going to be in heaven someday. Not long later, he died. Actually, after his death, his sister came to me, and uh, who I barely know at all, and, and, and she said this thing that will always stick with me. She said, I, I talked to my brother about you know, heaven or whatever, and, and he said, don't worry about it, I've talked to Chad, and I know where I'm going. When my grandpa died, uh, my uncle and my dad and I were in the rooms, the only person I've, I've ever watched breathe their last death, and um, struggling for hours, and uh, my dad pulled up his phone, and he put this song on called The Untitled Hymn. Do you know that song? It's, it's one of the more beautiful songs ever written. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, almost, I think, all of it to you this morning, um, because my grandpa, on, on the very last verse of this, I, I cannot make this up, uh, a tear came into his eye as he was barely breathing, and then he just took his last breath and died. And I think that all of the song is important as we deal with pressure because it's all about the hope of being with Jesus forever. And so let me read it to you. I'll, I'll kind of cue when we get to that verse that that my biological grandpa died on. Uh, here's how it goes. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now your burden's lifted and carried far away and precious blood has washed away the, the stain. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus and live. And like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus and live. Sometimes the way is lonely and steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus and live. Oh, and when the love spills over and music fills the night, and when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus and live. We got to this verse, and my grandfather breathed his last breath. And with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. And fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, 
Fly to Jesus and live. Fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus and live. I'm thankful that my grandpa, even late in life, had developed a hope that would allow him to fly to Jesus. And I hope that you'll all look forward to that moment in your life. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that I'll see my grandpa Jim in heaven someday. I thank you for the many people I'll see in heaven someday because of their relationship with you. But what concerns me this morning, God, first is so many people that haven't given their lives to you, uh, that don't have hope. And God, they don't have hope, not because like they're not thinking about hope, but because literally they're hopeless. There is no better future that awaits them after they breathe their last. There is only eternal destruction, God. And I pray, God, if there are any people who sit in front of me today, any who are listening online that have not committed their lives to you, Jesus, I pray that they would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, choose to do that right now. And they, God, would embrace the fact, the truth that you died for their sins and you came back to life so that they might have new life, a life that will never be separated from your presence or your love, no matter whether we are living or dead, Lord. And then, God, I know that I, I stand in front of a bunch of people who, who, Lord, have hope, but they don't live like they do. Lord, I know many in front of me fear disease and death the same way that non-Christians fear disease and death, and I hate that, and I pray that you would change that. I know that many in front of me, God, they, they, they look at the pressures of life just like everybody else, never remembering that this ain't it. And I pray that you would change that, Lord. And I know that many, God, in front of me, maybe most, they live every day, Lord, like there's nothing after this. They live for the moment. They live for the day. They don't live with the bigger picture in mind. And I pray that you would change that, Lord. I pray that this church and these people in it would be people of hope, God, I pray, Lord, that we would have hope in where we are going so that in the midst of life's pressures, God, the, the grace would keep flowing, Lord. Let us be a church that no matter what pressure we face, God, we live gracefully because we know that something better is coming. And I thank you, Jesus, that you offered that something better to us by your incredible grace. I pray these things in your name and because of your death, amen.